politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Bottoms up and welcome back This is Blotto here and as you may recall, in the last episode, I was telling you about how a trip to Texas, Houston specifically, was disrupted due to crazy storms that they had the prior week. Um, this was not a vacation per se. It was a medical trip uh, for Pop-Tart, and uh, things are going pretty well there. So um, that's what I'm doing right now. I am in our hotel room in Texas, in Houston. Not quite sure if the audio sounds different. It probably does with my mobile equipment. Um, but uh, hopefully it sounds good enough for you to stay tuned and we'll proceed. When in uh, Texas, I like to do as Texans do. Um, that doesn't mean wear a hat and boots, but it does mean drink Texan beer. and. What I picked up was some Buffalo Bayou Brewing Company 1836 Copper Ale. Crisp and malty with a touch of hops, 5.7% ABV. And it also says here, if you have to ask what 1836 stands for, please put down this beer and leave our country. So I kind of feel like this was specifically aimed at perhaps visitors. Um, nonetheless, I'm pretty sure I know what 1836 is, and maybe I'll confirm it, but I, I, I think it is when Texas declared their independence. And, and then later they lost that independence, I suppose, when they uh, uh, you know, were received into the Union as a, as a state. Remember the Alamo and all of that, 1836. Um, they do have, uh, you know, the can features uh, somebody um, holding a triumphant rifle up in the air. You just see the hands and the the hand and the uh, gun stock. But it's a nice looking can, and uh, Buffalo Bayou is based in Houston. So let's give this a shot here. Copper ale. Um, I would say a copper ale is uh, something that is in my wheelhouse. Um, first impressions are. It's not very copper, uh, much more yellow in color. So very kind of disappointed right out of the shoot there. You know, I, I don't know that Texas is known for its craft beer expertise. Um, I, you know, when you think about states, you know, we know Michigan ranks very high, Oregon, Vermont. Uh, I'm probably missing a few others, Colorado, California. Uh, so, Buffalo Bayou in Houston, you know, not really sure if that's a a brand that people are seeking out across the country. I'll give it a taste, though. Quite refreshing. It is what I would call crisp and malty, as the can says. There's a, a slight touch of hops. Uh, early impressions are that uh, I like it. Uh, I just do wish it was maybe a bit maltier. Uh, being that it's a copper ale, and I, I kind of feel like it's um, more of a of a pale ale, but uh, you know maybe I'll come back to it at the uh, towards the end of the show 
If not, uh, just assume that I'm enjoying my beer. Okay, where to start uh, this week? Uh, CPAC just finished up uh, yesterday. And, uh, you know, it was in many ways great fodder for the um, late night talk show hosts and even some of the mainstream uh, news media outlets. Uh, not really sure where we want to start here. I, I could start with. Ted Cruz's horrible speech. Uh, what a flop. Uh, he has no presence. He has no personality. Uh, and it, it's just so understandable why so many people dislike him. And how, and you know, how appropriate. Here I am in Texas and it's his state. So uh, I haven't taken any polls as I've walked around the streets of Houston. Uh, my my guess is Harris County, you won't find very many people that support him. Uh, so, you know, and that goes back to his embarrassment uh, that he was when he fled the state uh, and hid in Cancun behind his wife and daughters, uh, and then heads over to Orlando, as did many other Republicans, citing COVID, the reason that they couldn't go and uh, be in session uh, instead chose to be a part of CPAC. I don't know if I'd call it corruption. I don't even think it's a scandal, but it's just another example of, you know, hypocrisy and uh, how they stand against things until they don't. Uh, it just happens over and over again. Or we could talk about the golden statue. One of my favorite comments, and again, you kind of have to be from Michigan maybe Ohio, uh, was that it looked like uh, someone had stolen the big boy statue again and put gold leaf on it. Stealing the big boy statue is a thing. They, they do get stolen quite a bit, and it becomes kind of local news, and then they usually turn up again. And I don't think it's even the same criminals that have stolen the big boys year after year. The big boy gold Trump you know, it, it's comical, but it's also sad. What what commentary do you give to a political party that just worships one man, the way that they worship Trump? There was a meme that I saw this week that said, if, if Biden told me to go charge the White House, I, I, my reaction would be something, you know, like, what the hell's wrong with you, man? And I, and I think that's what Biden's reaction would be as well. Uh, so this idea of worshiping Trump, and when you hear certain Republican figures talking about how they need Trump to be successful, and we're going to get into that a little bit, uh, that's equally as sad, that they're relying on one person to carry the torch for their entire party or platform, and it's hardly a party anymore. I don't recall anything ever being like that on the Democratic side and even on the Republican side before that. You know, these guys are politicians. Uh, they're supposed to work for us. There's no way I would ever worship a politician. I didn't worship Obama. I didn't worship Clinton. They're there to do a job, and that's all I expect them to do. And I expect them to uh, work on behalf of all Americans, but also uh, to do what is right. I have a high bar for that, but at the same time, even if they meet that high bar, it's never going to get to the level of iconic worship, almost to the point, not not almost, to the point where, you know, 
Trump is chosen by God or they see him as a deity. And then, you know, you have the gold idol, right? And so, you know, then you bring in the whole biblical thing behind it that, you know, in the story of Moses, you know, they create the gold idol because they have lost faith and they pay a horrible price for it. And yet these so-called Christians that are also Trump worshipers, uh, even if they don't make that, uh, even if they didn't make that connection when they wheeled Trump through the halls and everyone applauded, uh, when it was pointed out to them, they still want to dismiss it in, in some way because he, they think he's, you know, some sort of savior. I, I don't know. It's kind of bizarre, and I hope I'm not rambling. But really, kind of what I wanted to talk about was Trump's speech there, and not. I don't. I don't need to fact check it. You know, we know it was full of lies and attacks, and he's continuing on with the big lie. But what was most interesting to me was he hit on Joe Biden a little bit, and he always, you know, is going to hit on the Democrats. But he really attacked fellow Republicans. He, he's really angry at those Republicans that voted for his impeachment or has uh, or have otherwise criticized him. And this has kind of brought about this idea of, is there a civil war happening within the Republican Party? And I think there's a couple ways to look at it. One is, you'd have to define what the civil war is. Because what, what, what I think this kind of comes down to is, maybe they're not enamored with Trump anymore. And I do believe he will become as a person irrelevant, but they definitely are rallying around Trump's ideology. And that's probably more, more dangerous. Uh, you know, I think it was uh, Washington Post that kind of put this article out there and others maybe about whether or not there's a civil war within the Republican Party, and they brought up things like uh, the censure that's happening and Liz Cheney and Trump specifically calling out those Republicans. But at the same time, then you have the CPAC poll where they preferred the Republicans at CPAC preferred Trump 55% over anyone else. Ron DeSantis, of all people, came in second at 21%. I kind of feel like that was just a homer pick, but uh, you know it was his it was, it was his hometown, uh, and and I and I hope he would not be the nominee in twenty twenty four. I hope you know whoever it is that they'll be deplorable. But the CPAC winners in the past have never really meant very much. In relevant years, previous winners have been Ron Paul, Mitt Romney, Rand Paul because they couldn't get enough, and Ted Cruz most recently in 2016. So, you know, winning CPAC is, is is kind of like in the NFL, getting your face put on the cover of Madden. You're probably going to get injured and miss the rest of the season. So with the Civil War, um, you know, I'm not really sure how one would define it. You had Mitch McConnell come out and, you know, accuse Trump basically of treason and insurrection after the impeachment but then a week later, he says that he's going to vote for him if he is the nominee. And you had some kind of saying that they don't think he's going to be the nominee and they don't want him to be the nominee. But he he may very well. And they're putting themselves in a position to say, OK, well, then I would have to vote for him. And, and so how McConnell can justify, and he really can't, saying that he would vote for a guy that 
was the root cause of the insurrection on January 6th is that he's just going to stand behind party. And I think he's going to stand behind party in a way that he's also going to stand behind the principles of Trump. Not all of them necessarily. We, we, we know trade is one where uh, he, he's going to uh, diverge from, from the former president, uh, but not on many other, other topics. He's never going to not flip parties, but do anything other than say he's going to support the Republican nominee, especially if they do take back the Senate. His leadership of the Senate could also be in jeopardy for uh, you know some of the other past things that he has said about Trump. The, the other thing that I thought was interesting about the CPAC poll was Trump only got 55%. And, you know, that's a pretty high number, but it's not 80%. It's not 90%. You know, and that's where his approval rating is currently with, you know, the, the rabid, most hardcore Trumpster base, especially those that went to CPAC. And so if he has an 80 or 90 percent approval rating, how come he doesn't have a higher, uh, you know, lead the party in 2024 uh, rating through the poll, which, like I said, was only 55 percent. I think that shows that there are a lot of Republicans, Trumpsters out there that don't want him to run, that like his ideas, like the way he did things. But part of that is just ego. Even if they didn't, they're still going to stand behind the guy they voted for. Fortunately, in 2020, there was just enough of them that flipped. But really, that's really not why Biden won. It was more about turnout of the uh, of the Democratic Party beyond the base. There were some of the suburban uh, soccer moms that flipped. And, you know, we needed every single vote. But I don't think it was, by and large, Republicans. I, I think it was just it was just turnout. So if those people are still supporting Trump as a past president at 80, 90 percent, 95 percent, whatever it is, uh, then why wouldn't more vote for him? I mean, you know, why did 21 percent peel away and go to Santos? I, I don't know how many people are polled in the straw poll. Uh, at CPAC, I could probably look that up. Is it a couple thousand? Is it a couple hundred? Is it 14? I don't know if the CPAC, poll, uh, CPAC convention is as well attended as it has been in the past. I mean, w one, of the, one of the things that Trump has also done, because he, he, he ruins everything he touches, is he's ruined CPAC, which I don't care about. But CPAC was originally designed to be a conservative platform for ideas, still kind of the extreme wing of the party, but it was about their ideas and how to get them into the Republican platform. And in this CPAC, there was very little of that. Most of it was repeating the big lie, fawning support for the golden statue, and uh, trying to position themselves as the possible heir to that gold statue podium that Trump now occupies, and very little on substance. And 
I, I, I haven't paid that much attention to it over the years, but I know that it has changed at least dramatically this year. In non-election years, it probably was more of that in 2019. You know, Trump was in, in place already. It was probably about getting him. But in the years leading up to election, whether it be 2011 through 2012, 2016, 2020, uh, it, it should be more about whatever the platform is really trying to um, so, you know, I don't know where this really goes for the Republican Party. And are they Trump's party or are they the ideas of Trump? I, 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 I still think that they are the ideas of Trump because they're taking what he did. They've learned from it. That taps into that angry white rural voter, you know, that, that blue collar guy and has turned him into a very political, politically active uh, voter. And, and that base is strong. Then you couple that, kind of going off here a little bit, you couple that with the voter suppression laws that all the states are now looking to pass. And uh, now you, you've got maybe a formula to win back one of the houses in the presidency. Um, hopefully the new voting rights bill that the Democrats are pushing through are going to supersede anything the states do. And then we'll see what the court battles now. And that should be pretty interesting. So I think that's all I got on, on CPAC. And, you know, we'll, we'll have to see now that CPAC is over what Trump does to try and stay relevant. Uh, I really think he's going to become Ill, irrelevant. But that doesn't mean that his idea. The House passed a COVID relief bill late Saturday night, I think. And it's the $1.9 trillion that was in it. I think that Biden would have negotiated if Republicans would have negotiated in good faith, but we know that they don't. And if history is any indicator, that's what they did with Obama. That's what they did with DA. Uh, required all these things get added to the bill. It's a very watered down Republican government subsidized health care, and then not a single one voted for it. And I think that Biden was right, and the Democrats in the House and Pelosi were smart to say, we're not going to listen to your ideas unless you have, you know, you give us your assurances that you're going to back the bill. And they could have lied about that too. So in either case, we're just going to go forward with our bill. I think there was room for negotiation, but I do like the way Biden has played it. And he said, you don't like something in the bill? Tell me what you want taken out, and then we'll talk about it. Go on the record whether you want to reduce funding for schools or vaccine distribution or, you know, the $1,400 per person, you know, and the Republicans got real quiet real fast. So it, it is a 100% Democratic bill, but the Republicans don't want to uh, negotiate in good faith. So now it's off to the Senate. The one change that is going to happen is that they strip the the fifteen dollar minimum wage out of the bill due to parliamentary rules, and we could override that. I don't think Kamala Harris and Joe Biden want to override that. I think they don't want to set that precedent. Although I think it was last week I talked about precedent, and unless precedent is set by laws, it's not really precedent. It's just your own bias actions. You know, future bias actions be damned. But I think that there's also other ways. Having the, the minimum wage stripped out of there doesn't really bother me. Put it in a standalone bill, make them vote on it. 
And, and, you know, if there has to be negotiations on that, then so be it. If it's 15, you know, we get up to $15 over three years or five years, we go, we get to $11 over two years or three years, whatever it is, that's the way government's supposed to work. And, uh, you know, when you have the, when you have one party that has the majority, the majority of the power, uh, then they should be given more leverage with that com- with those compromises, and the other party, you know, has to honor that. But that's not really the way this is going to work, and it's hard to imagine what standalone bills are going to get passed without uh, eliminating the the filibuster. And hopefully that happens. I think I want that to happen. You know, I'm I'm always hopeful that there's another way. Because what happens when, you know, the Senate flips the other way, and we don't even know if we have the votes, the Democrats don't even know if, if there's enough votes to eliminate the filibuster, because Joe Manchin has said, I mean, one of the concerns that I have is there might be some senator, um, maybe not Joe Manchin, because he's so pro, so high profile, but, you know, somebody else in a, in a red state and decides they're going to flip and go Republican Party, and we lose the Senate that way before. 2022. Uh, uh, that's certainly a realistic concern in my mind. I don't hear it talked about very much, so it's just my own paranoia. So it goes to the House, and 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 you know they there will be debate on it, and you know hopefully there's going to be some normalcy restored to the way the bill process is done, and there'll be some real debate on it, and then I guess it goes back to the House for some procedural voting, back to the Senate and and then signed off on by the president. And I think they want to have this done uh, certainly before the end of March, but I, I think sooner than that. And and then we'll have to kind of see, you know, what the political wins are at that point in time. Perhaps Joe's going to go after infrastructure and think he can get something done on a bipartisan basis to try and avoid the filibuster stand. I mean, if they go right for gun control or student debt, well, he can do something on that, just executive order or health care, or the minimum wage, uh, that's not going to happen without the filibuster. Uh, and even if we're not going to eliminate it, we have to get them on the record to you know, show their colors, because all of those things that I have mentioned are wildly popular in public. And for anyone listening that calls themselves a conservative, you may think you're a conservative for you know, reasons of immigration and other more ambiguous stuff like, you know, smaller government. But you're part of a group that does want better gun control, better health care options, increased minimum wage. Those are things that you want as well. And there's got to be some pressure put on your party to to get them passed. And you know, there's two reasons that they're not going to get them passed. One is because it hurts them from a donor standpoint, from radical corporations, radical individuals that want to have a more fascist America. But the uh, the other reason is uh, they don't want the Democrats to show success. They don't want Biden to have success in their terms. And that's really the, the main reason why things for the American public don't get done through Congress. Because, you know, if if you show that success, I mean, you know, Trump probably could have won another presidency, another term, 
had he played up his successes and not his failures, um, really. I mean, it was a horribly run campaign, and it just shows again uh, com- uh, how completely idiotic he is. And he surrounds himself by idiots as well. And then, you know, anyone, anyone that is, uh, you know, smart enough to work themselves into that inner circle uh, usually is smart enough to want to work themselves out as quickly as possible. A couple other things that have happened in the news. Uh, One is uh, Biden's bombing of the targets in Syria that uh, were against Iraq. And I think the Democrats are justified in calling him out that he shouldn't be able to use the same authority that previous presidents have used in, air quotes, war against terror. And I think it's good to see that it's good to see Democrats calling him out and uh, they don't want to just rubber stamp what he's done. He doesn't really need to answer for it. This is precedent that was set by so many other presidents before him. So, you know, once again, I look at that situation and say, okay, I don't necessarily agree with him doing it without being involved. I also want Congress to have votes on the matter and be on the record with what those votes are. So when they have to stand up in front of their constituents and they talk about, you know, never ending wars, there's a record of did they vote for the never ending war or they didn't vote. And and that's the main reason that Congress doesn't take up the issue. It's easy to complain. Democrats and Republicans are complaining about Biden's bombing of Syria without their uh, permission. But at the, at the end of the day, they don't want to really give it because they're not really even saying, well, I would have given it or I wouldn't have. Uh, and so, you know, they they really want it both ways. And for the most part, they are getting it. Um, getting to have both ways. But I, I, I hope that the complaining by the Democrats is enough to get Joe to think about doing it again, you know, to get him to pause. Other presidents, I would say, no, it's not going to affect them. You know, certainly not going to affect Trump. In fact, I think he would do it in spite of them. It may have affected Obama, but uh, he was also dealing with a Republican uh, uh, Congress. So, he knew that he would never get that authorization. They certainly weren't going to take it up. So that kind of brings up that side of it, right? If the Democrats really want to complain, then let's bring it up. Again, they have they have the majority rule right now in, in Congress. Uh, Biden's also having some trouble with some of his uh, cabinet nominees, um, particularly uh, Neera Tandon uh, for OMB director. And this this story, I, I I don't want to really get into this story uh, too much um, because it just reeks of hypocrisy. And I'm not one that holds hypocrisy up in very many arguments. I I, I think it's a, a weak argument, right? You know, people can be hypocritical in many different ways in their lives and the way they react with certain people versus other people in the way that they conduct their personal life versus their business life. And I'm not saying that it's it's always right to be hypocritical. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. I think by and large, most people attempt not to be hypocritical and stand on principle. But it, it's such a part of everyday living for most people. And if you don't think you're, you've never been a hypocrite, uh, 
you know, I, I would think either you're not, you're not thinking it through far enough or you're just flat out lying. Are you a hypocrite if you've ever done drugs, but then you tell your children don't do drugs? You know, just, just one example. So the hypocrisy argument to me doesn't play very well, but I do have to bring it up in, in this situation because I think it's combined with sexism where, you know, her nomination is on the ropes because of mean tweets that she has uh, tweeted in the past, some of them going back uh, five, 10 years ago. And so now they've come up and they're like, you know, you're too much of a polarizing figure because you've said some really nasty things like comparing Ted Cruz to vampires and, you know, using the hashtag Moscow Mitch. Um, and, you know, it, one time, you know, Republicans don't believe in science, this hyperbolic blanket statement. And, and so now, Senate Republicans and a few uh, Democrats are, are saying that this is not the kind of person that they want in a cabinet position, completely disregarding the last four years and not just Trump's horrible tweets, but people in his sphere, right? Mainly Richard Grinnell, who said all kinds of horrible things, especially about women in his past. And he was confirmed. And he was confirmed by Democrats as well. Uh, you know, Trump's nominees, most of them are passing with some uh, Republican votes. But what's interesting is uh, when you look at it by the numbers, uh, there were 13 men in his cabinet and eight have been confirmed. There were 11 in his cabinet that require confirmation and only four have been confirmed. So eight. So year to date, and the process is taking uh, way too long. It's painfully slow. The Senate, and I don't know if this is a Schumer issue or, you know, McConnell didn't want to give up the reins earlier. So that was kind of a weird thing, right, uh, when the transition started after January 6th. But somewhere along the lines, uh, most of the women to get confirmed have been pushed on the back burner and now you're getting, you know, some crazy pushback from senators as to why they shouldn't be confirmed, uh, like near attendance, you know, mean tweets. I mean, it's just in, in today's world, it's it's unfathomable to think that somebody would get confirmed because of mean tweets. And, and she's even said she apologizes for the tone, um, you know, and I think that's all she has to apologize for. The rest of it is just silly. Um, but... Um, Hopefully, uh, you know, she, she doesn't have to withdraw. She is very qualified. But at the same time, and, you know, I, I said this during the, the Trump transition as well. If someone doesn't look like they're the right person, move on. Again, these people aren't so special that they're the only ones that can do the job that they have been picked for. You know, we have 330 million people in this country. And, you know, I've seen Neera Tandon on TV many, many times prior to this nomination. She seems like, you know, a very sharp person. I think she's highly qualified, but it's not going to kill me if she doesn't get the job. You know, if his chief of staff didn't get confirmed, you know, we move on and we get another one. You know, we don't want to be bullied by the, the Republicans in the Senate. I get that. But 
you know, at the same time, just go pick a different person that's, you know, equally qualified. And, and that shouldn't be that hard to do. And it, it saves the country a whole lot of angst. Last thing uh, that I was going to bring up, uh, which I think is just really precious, is the idea of the state of New York getting their hands on Trump's tax returns. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that they weren't going to interfere with the handover of those tax returns. There was, um, you know, some crazy dissent in there, but, uh, or, or am I confusing that with the dissent on not hearing the last case on, yes, I am, the last case on voter fraud, Clarence Thomas and his crazy dissent basically say, just fortifying the idea that there was uh, questionable behavior in the election that the American people should hear, giving some level of Supreme Court justice credence to, to the fact that there could have been fraud. And he's been soundly bashed by it. But that's not what, what I'm talking about. And that is the court said that uh, uh, the state of New York and the prosecutors have a right to those tax returns. They sat on this ruling uh, since October when it got to them. And I think they were waiting to see if he won the presidency, which is, you know, that's a Roberts thing. And he has politicized the Supreme Court like no other. So shame on him. Thankfully, Trump lost because if Trump doesn't lose, I, I don't think they rule on it when it should have been a very easy ruling back in October. Since they don't answer to people, it's hard to tell, but it would have been, you know, an interesting dialogue to have with Roberts. Well, why did you wait until February? And what were you seeking, you, you know, to to use in your decision making in October and February? And was that the re-election um, or the election results? I find it difficult to believe that there really was any other reason beside that. But uh, they're out there and can be used in civil or criminal matters, several uh, which are pending. And we'll have to see where that goes. You know, I'm, I'm sure Trump is really, really uh, sweating like Nixon over that. The courts won't move fast enough for us. That's just not the way things go. But uh, they will move. And I think there's enough people out there that I don't want to say that it's revenge, but have been put under a microscope to follow up on some of the very blatant irregularities to find out whether or not there was real criminal intent behind, you know, such as reporting your property value to the bank at a much higher rate and then those same properties to the government for tax purposes at much lower values. There are laws, and I believe that they are criminal laws for just such, for, for such deeds. And I think that's the big one, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right. Well, I better go attend to Pop-Tart and uh, see how she's doing, but everything is good here. Hopefully be back in Michigan for the next episode. Until then, drink up, listen up, and potums up. Politics, some culture and craft beer, politics. And that is why you're here, politics, I don't know.